0: Here we are once again in the book of Romans, and I am so happy to come to Romans chapter 11 only after we have been carefully looking at everything that has gone on before. We need that overall context to help us to understand where Paul is going with his thinking. We need to keep in mind that in Romans 11, one of the critical issues is Paul cautioning the Gentiles to not be arrogant towards the Jews. Earlier on, he has said to the Jews, well, is God only the God of the Jews? And now he is confronting some of this arrogance in uh, the uh, Gentiles. A long time ago, back in the introduction, we saw that Paul wants to promote Christian unity between Jew and Gentile. I think we see that all the more plainly. But let me remind you of what Douglas Moore has written. There are many synagogues in Rome by the first century AD. Let me summarize this. There were many Jews there. Then in 49 AD, Claudius issued an edict and all of the Jews were scattered about 10 years later when Paul is writing this, about 57 AD, is when those Jews would have been allowed to come back in, but the the church for a while was 100% Gentile. So some of the Jews had leading roles in the past and now they come back to their home church it's maybe not that recognizable. So one can imagine the second paragraph, the kind of social tension that such a situation would create. Jews who stand in the heritage from which Christianity has sprung and who were at one time leaders of the community now find themselves the minority in the Christian community. We see from the very beginning, Paul is talking about Jew and Gentile. The gospel is for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We see Romans 2, he's defining what a true Jew is, what a true Israelite is. For is not a Jew as one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of, a heart, of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. On the basis of these verses, you are a true spiritual Jew if God has born you, caused you to be born again to a living hope. Romans 3, 29. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Romans 10, verse 12, where he's emphasizing our responsibility in the gospel. For there is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon him. In Romans 11 and 26, This is, in a sense, a key verse for understanding Romans 11. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. We all agree with that, but the big deal is, what is Israel here? What is the all? What is all Israel? And I want you to come into my world a little bit as a as a student trying to have an accurate understanding, let's let uh, Linsky, the evangelical, the German uh, evangelical Lutheran, uh, speak to us. The history of the exegesis of this sentence is not edifying. Well, that's quite a starting point for me to read a quote to you. It began well, the understanding of the passage and the teaching on it began well and continued thus until Augustine, lived, born in 354, voiced his opinion that Elijah and Enoch would return. The place where it talks in Romans 11 of the deliverer, well, he figured that's Elijah and Enoch would come and convert the entire Jewish nation. In the Middle Ages, the Venerable Beda uh, spread the idea of this general conversion, and it became fixed in the Catholic Church. The interpreters of the Reformation period returned to a more biblical view, with the exception of a few who followed Augustine, although they avoided his Jewish comment uh, concerning Elijah. Since then, especially as an adjunct to millennialism, the final national conversion of the Jews has found a host of exegetical and other advocates. And now in the yellow What is so depressing about most of this exegesis, this unfolding of the passage, especially also in its more recent manifestations, is the fact that words are not taken in their general sense. What I've told you, this word means every place else in the book of Romans, but we're going to give it a different meaning here in Romans chapter 11. Let us add, Linsky goes on, let us add, the commentator Meyer is the last example. The conversion of the Gentiles progresses successively, but when, quote, the totality of the heathen, all persons who them, constitute them, when not a heathen person is left, then all Israel, absolutely every Jew living then, when absolutely every heathen is converted, will also be converted, probably in rapid development. Meyer adds, and this is before the parousia. So the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Every single Gentile, that's how he understands it, is going to be converted. Then the next thing that happens is that every single, absolutely every Jew with Abrahamic DNA in them, then they are going to be converted. When Christ comes to judgment, he will not find a single unconverted person, Gentile or Jew. Christ was then mistaken when he asked, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 8. According to Meyer, he will find nothing but faith. All right, let's take one further step away from Biblicism. If you advance beyond Meyer, does not all Israel include all the dead, hardened Jews? So they too will be converted, being raised up for this very purpose when that final universal Jewish conversion takes place. If you're a Gentile and you've died and gone to the place of torment, you stay there. But if you're a Jew, according to this, including Esau, is going to be raised during this period so that you can now respond to the gospel. Well, do you see the need to be careful in working through this passage? You might be able to say, well, I don't feel comfortable out there in that fringe-like understanding. So we're looking at this section, international defense of the gospel. God's promises will be fulfilled. And as we come to this passage, it is so much your understanding of what you're carrying with you as you come into these early verses of Romans 11 that is going to influence your understanding of what that all Israel is. Two different views on God's saving focus. Some see successive ways. God dealt with primarily Jews in the Old Testament, almost exclusively. And then, in, since the time of Christ... It's largely a focus on Gentiles. But then there's going to be a spiritual revival of the Jews. And then even as they're saved, some posit that there's another wave among any remaining Gentiles. I think a more accurate understanding is to see in the Old Testament, God dealt with Gentiles, but there were a few Jew he did dealt primarily with Jews, and it's good, this is on the screen, so you can fact check me real quick, that that there would be very few Gentiles like Rahab and Ruth and um, others that were brought into the kingdom. In this era, There's a great many more Gentiles living in the world and more Gentiles are being saved and yet there are some Jews that are being saved and this is probably the picture of what is going to go on until the end of time. There's two different meanings of Israel. There's physical Israel, there's spiritual Israel. In the Old Testament, it was a physical nation and the true Israel was inside of it. Now in the church, it's to be a spiritual nation, and yet there are some blemishes within it. The question is, who are God's true people in the book of Romans? We've already looked at this passage. There's an outward and physical Jew contrasted with the true Jew, inwardly changed. And we'll skip over and say, who are God's people? Romans 9, we need to read this passage. Who are God's true people? For not all who are descended from Israel, physical, Abrahamic DNA, belong to Israel, the true Israel, the believing sons and daughters of believing Abraham. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, his physical offspring. Verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, as a regenerate offspring, so who is God's true Israel? Those who are born of God. Who are the true people of God in Romans? We've seen this in Romans 8. Uh, His people according to the flesh, his people whom he foreknew, spiritual Israel. And then the contrast of physical Israel and the remnant of Israel in verse 5. Let's pick up verse 7 here. Uh, there is Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. There was, a, there was the gray, is the, the darkness that is on those who reject God. The little bit of green there is the, is the light that has come to the elect. They obtained it. So who is all Israel in Romans 11 and verse 26? Now, finally. As we come through our introduction, two different figures. The first fruits cake offering, and that is saying that here is this cake offering, it's over here, isn't it? This is what gets offered up to God. And if the four cups that I put into that cake or that which I'm gonna offer up in the first fruits, it was taken from a pile of grain, which was the grain of the first fruits. And so saying, if, I, if, if Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are offered up, and they're the first fruits of it, God can save any one of these Jews that's in that pile. That is Paul's logic. Then the olive tree and the root grafts, the Gentiles, the wild olives—not as nice of olives—but the wild olives are put into the cultivated. Root. So we get a picture like this, that, that the, the Gentiles here is a little sticks, little stems that are grafted in. And yet they're the ones that are now becoming arrogant and despising the Jews. And so he says, are, 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 who supports who? Are you supporting the root or is the root supporting you? You're getting your spiritual nourishment from the Abrahamic covenant, and there it shows what a graph takes off. And we love this picture because it's got some of the Gentiles there, and it's got some of the Jews there, and they're all part of the one tree. All right, here we go. Roman numeral one, if you care to use her handout sheet, the mystery. The mystery of the Jew and Gentile inclusion in Jesus, starting with verse 25. Still talking to the Gentiles who are tending to be arrogant. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So we have to talk now about this mystery. A, the definition of the Pauline mystery. A mystery is something that God reveals that was previously hidden. There would be hints of it in the Old Testament, but now it is plainly revealed. And Romans 16 and verse 25 gives us something of this same definition. Let me read that to you, 1625. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. That's what a mystery is in Paul's thinking. Secondly, B, the content of the Pauline mysteries. I want to read to you from Ephesians 3, as you can see how close it is to the mystery that he's talking about in Romans uh, chapter 11 how the mystery, Ephesians 3 and verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. God spoke to him. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. In the Old Testament, Abraham was told that in your seed, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. So there's the hint of it. But now the full revelation of the mystery is that Jew and Gentile stand shoulder to shoulder in the one church of Jesus Christ, and they are fellow heirs. All of the riches of the Jews through that Abrahamic covenant now come to the Gentiles as well. What is a mystery? In other places with Paul, Ephesians 5, 25 through 32, me just saying that should make you think of husband and wife relationship. But that section closes with these words this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You've known about Christ before, you've known that the church is to obey Christ. But the, the mystery is that's plainly revealed is like Christ is like a husband, and the church is like a bride. And there is this parallel, and it's plainly revealed. Colossians 1. And verse 25, The church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's one thing to be told, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed in the Old Testament, and another thing for Gentiles to be told, Jesus Christ is dwelling in you as individuals and as gathered churches by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 2 Thessalonians 2 For that day will come unless will not come until the rebellion comes first, and he's talking about the lawless one in Second Thessalonians 2 7. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So you see what a mystery is. It can be about Christ and his church, it can be about Jesus Christ dwelling in Gentiles. It's about the riches, it's about the same inheritance, it can be about how lawlessness is going to come about in the end of time and Jesus comes and will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. Thirdly, see the content of this mystery, this Romans 11 mystery. Verse 25 now. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. And what is the mystery? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. First of all, a little number one in your sheet, the recipients of this explanation, Gentile believers. He's still talking to these that he was warning not to be haughty. Number two. A long, continuing, partial hardening of physical Israel. Has he completely rejected Israel? No. Part of Israel is perhaps judicially hardened because they have rejected God so much. Part of Israel is not hardened and will be saved. And that is the state of affairs that is going to be for a long time. It's going to be this way until all of the Gentiles are converted, and I take that to mean pretty much to the end of the age. So a long-continuing partial hardening. Thirdly, what do we have here in this mystery? The end or the termination of the hardening comes at the pleroma, the full number of the elect Gentiles have come into the kingdom. And you can look at this two ways until all of the Gentiles are in, and that's the end of everything, Christ returns. Or you can say, well, it goes to this point, and then there's still a little time to go on. But there are two ways of looking at that, hence some of the confusion. Now in verse 26, the summary statement that all true Israel will be saved. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And I suggest to you, Paul is saying, this is the plan for the gospel age. This is what's going to go on from the time that Jesus ascended into heaven until the time when Jesus comes again. God is reaching into the prison house of disobedience and he's drawing some Gentiles and some Jews out through the one common door of God's mercy. The opening word in verse 26 is more of a therefore than a then, uh, where we read, and in this way, where God is saving from both groups, and in this way, all Israel is going to be saved. So what is all Israel? I could give you 14 different views on that. Maybe not but enough to confuse us all, at least enough to confuse me. But I'll give you one that I think is right. All Israel refers to the true people of God in the sense that you are a true Jew, chapter 2, if God has inwardly changed you. The Genevan writes, and so all Israel, many understand this of the Jewish people, as though Paul had said that religion would again be restored among them as before. But I extend the word Israel to mean all the people of God according to this meaning. When the Gentiles come in, the Jews also shall return from their defection to the obedience of faith, and thus shall be completed the salvation of the whole Israel of God, which must be gathered from both, and yet in such a way that the Jews shall obtain the first place, being, as it were, the firstborn in God's family. I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, but that's part of his quote. This interpretation seems to me to be the most suitable because Paul intended to set forth here the completion of the kingdom of Christ, which is by no means to be confined to the Jews, but to include the whole world. Genevan goes on. The same manner of speaking, we find Galatians 6 and verse 16. The Israel of God is what he calls the church. The Galatian churches with Gentiles and Jews there together. They are the Israel of God. Fourthly, D. The Christ-centered means of fulfilling the mystery. Here's the mystery. The Jews reject God uses that in his purpose to make the Jews jealous. Why are they getting blessing from God? And that prompts some of them to come to faith in the Lord Jesus. Paul looks back to Isaiah 59 and verse 20, and he says that this is what's going to happen. Not latter part of verse 26. As it is written, the deliverer, Will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Who is the deliverer? The identity of the deliverer? Well, it's not Elijah and it's not Enoch. It is the Redeemer, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to keep in mind that when Isaiah 59 comes, we've already had Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord is going to take the sins of his people onto him and he's going to save them. Isaiah 52 and verse 14 and 15, that the servant of the Lord is going to somehow sprinkle the nations and clean them from their sins. And we have to keep in mind that Isaiah 49 has already been given to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Yahweh says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring them back to the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So there we have, number one, the identity of the deliverer. None of us can question that. Number two, Yahweh's work of sanctification in his people. He will, verse 26 ends, he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. What does that remind you of in the book of Romans? Sanctification. What shall we say then, chapter 6, as it begins on sanctification? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. If you're a child of God, you will be changed. If you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, the old has passed away and the new has come to stay. Thirdly, Yahweh's work of justification. Verse 27, last phrase. When I will take away their sins. Isaiah 53 speaks of this substitutionary sin bearing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We're the ones who did all the sin and he's the one who does all the dying for that sin. So that we have John the Baptist announcing Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not of Jews only, but of the world. So Paul, in that section of justification by faith, speaks to us in Romans 3 and verse 21, but the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. We've all sinned, and we do not merit the glory of God. But if we will believe in Jesus Christ, our sins go to him, and his perfect righteousness comes to us. Fourthly, what else do we have? What other assurance do we have that God is going to have evangelism go to the ends of the earth? Yahweh's solemnized promise by covenant a covenant is an oath sworn promise it's a promise that you make that's got life and death implications if God doesn't fulfill his word to Abraham then God says that he pledges to become like the pieces of meat that his emblem has just passed through Verse 27 is now quoting from Isaiah 27 and verse 9. This will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. What's the new covenant? Three blessings and the final is as Christ comes, he dies on the cross for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. And Paul is like Paul is saying to the Gentiles. There are some times when you find it just absolutely amazing. It's hard to believe that you have been brought into a relationship with God and you've been part of this natural olive tree. And at other times, you find it hard to believe that God is still doing anything with these Jews. And why would you? They're so disgusting. And they've turned their back on you. This is the mystery. That the Jewish rejection leads to Gentile inclusion. By Jews getting jealous. And then wanting what the Gentiles have. This section, 9 through 11, emphasizes God's purpose. This section 9 to 11 emphasizes our responsibility of the gospel. You need to believe it, you need to share it. This section, Romans 9 through 11, underscores that God will fulfill his promises, but God's promises are defined by God. You can't come into this passage with your own feelings Well, you want this or that to happen. God will fulfill his promise. The Holy Spirit referencing Messiah's covenantal involvement gives us the assurance that this is going to help us. This is going to happen. It's a tremendous encouragement to think, Take the gospel to Jew and Gentile and believe that Jesus is going to fulfill his covenant, his oath-sworn promise. Because what happens? We're recently having a discussion of, uh, of what method, uh, what demographics, where, how do we reach out and what, where do we concentrate effort And you know, a discussion like that can be a little discouraging. Well, we've tried this. We've we've tried this. Well, not not much there. And you look out on a God-despising society where we're to come with the gospel and we could say, yeah, there's not a lot of hope if you're simply looking at their hearts. However, when we look at what Jesus has already done on the cross and when we look at this reminder of his covenantal promise that he's going to deliver that he's going to forgive them justify them and he's going to sanctify them then all of a sudden we see what the holy spirit is going to intend going to do with individuals working as a church then all of a sudden, we can add this greater strength of, well, I can scatter some seed. I can scatter some seed. And God has got the power to germinate that seed according to a sovereign plan. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, I will have mercy. On those that I will have mercy. And if God sets his affection on someone, he will save them. That's the mystery. Roman numeral two: the believing Gentile regard for the believing Jew. How should you Gentiles think of believing Jews? Well, we're in the same olive tree, we're in the same church. But notice how Paul lays this out. First of all, he says, Gentile, when you're looking at these Jews, first of all, physical Jews are either enemies or beloved, verse 28 and 29. What does he mean? Well, they are gospel enemies, verse 28a. They are gospel enemies. As regards the gospel, they are enemies. For your sake. Paul wants these Gentile Christians to remember that Jewish unbelief caused the gospel to come to the Gentiles so that they, the Gentile Christians, now have all its riches. For your sakes, tersely sums up what this one phrase, in this one phrase, what Paul has laid out in verse 11 and 12. Through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass, the Jews' trespass, their rejection of Christ means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You see what Paul is saying? I'm helping you in your psyche, You look at these Jews, and yes, they are enemies of the gospel. But at one level, that is good for you. Because they were such enemies for the gospel, God has largely turned his back on them as a nation, and now God is reaching out to the Gentiles. Don't get too upset over the matter that they hate Jesus because it's because that they hate jesus that all of the privileges and riches of jesus have come to you gentiles for your sake secondly they are either gospel enemies or they are beloved by god in election next part of verse 28 but as regards election they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers they hate Jesus Christ and they are beloved by Jesus Christ. They are beloved by God. And that's a good thing for someone, for their forefathers. Lenski again. But those Jews who, at first, such unbelieving enemies, when they are regarded according to the election, constitute the remnant according to the election of grace. Verse 5 and verse 7. So they were, and from this group of God-hating, gospel-hating Jews, he reaches in and he makes some of them the beloved. This is a name that God has given to Jesus Christ, my beloved son. This is the name that God has given to all of the believers at the church at Rome. They are beloved by God. So they come from being gospel enemies over here to being the beloved in Jesus Christ. As regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the forefathers. What's going on here? They were gospel enemies, but that's for your sake. You get a benefit out of that. They are beloved by God and the forefathers get a benefit out of this. And what's the benefit? Well, I seem to remember that when God promised salvation to Abraham, it was as well to a great number of his descendants. And so these who were physical descendants of Abraham now become believing, spiritual descendants of Abraham. So what Paul is saying to the Jews is, first of all, when you look at them and they are hating the gospel, just remember that worked out pretty well for you. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him. But the second thing he is saying that when someone is converted, when a Jew is converted, it is obvious that he is beloved of God. Do not fail to appreciate the great value of your believing Jewish brothers and sisters. Don't make a snap judgment that all physical Jews are the same, whether they believe or not. They're still Jews. The big difference is not between you being a believing Gentile and all Jews. The big difference is between a God-hating Jew and a Jew that is beloved by God in conversion. You are one with the believing Jews in that same olive tree. And you are also beloved as they are beloved and a part of God's forever family. And do you think this has any implication for you and me? If not for Jesus Christ I'm not sure that I would really know anyone in this room including my wife. The gospel has had such a profound influence and impact on my life. And you wouldn't know me if it weren't for Jesus Christ. And if I knew you in the world chances are that my motto as an unconverted person, me, me, and me. You wouldn't like me, and I wouldn't like you. But no matter our background, our social status, our financial situation, the fundamental issue is whether or not you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And if you're a believer, you are beloved by God. And if I'm a believer, I'm beloved by God. And the wonderful thing is that the gospel comes and it brings us all together in Jesus Christ. The devil deceives and destroys, the devil deceives, divides, and destroys. And Jesus just does just the opposite in forgiving us, in healing us, making us restored, and restoring us to the people of God. So number one, the enemies. Number two, the beloved. Now number three, the confirmation of God's call to salvation for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The wonderful change that brings them from gospel friends to being beloved by God is due to the powerful call of God to salvation. He's already hinted at this. Romans 1 and verse 6, very introduction. Including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Verse 7. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace. Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God knows what he's doing. And when he starts in bringing salvation to an individual, he's going to bring them through all the way. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God will not change his mind. Secondly, B, the common bond. If he's been, first of all, saying, and how are you going to regard these Jews? Well, they're either enemies or beloved, and both are good for you. So you ought to like them. Secondly, B, the common bond of God's mercy for believing Jew and Gentile. Verse 30 through 32. I said in our reading of the scripture, disobedience four times and mercy four times in these three verses. First of all, verse 30, this is a little number one. Believing Gentiles have moved from disobedience to mercy. They have moved from the prison of disobedience to God to the church, which is an expression of God's mercy. Notice the fact of their Gentile disobedience to God. Just as you were at one time disobedient. That was your life. And the fact of their Gentile reception of the mercy of God. But now have received mercy. Middle part, verse 30. Because of their disobedience. What is mercy? Jonathan Edwards says... God is pleased to show mercy to his enemies according to his own sovereign pleasure. Though he is infinitely above us and stands in no need of the creatures, yet he graciously is pleased to take a merciful notice of poor worms in the dust. Compared to God, we are like worms in the dust. Yet God looks at us feels for us, and determines to do us kindness. And God did this because of the Jewish rejection. They so much hated Jesus Christ and turned against him, God reaches out to you, he notices you in your sin, and he shows kindness to you. That's verse 30. What's verse 31? Well, now believing Jews have moved From disobedience to mercy. They have moved out of the same prison. Different quarters. Same prison. Different sections. Otherwise they would have killed one another. They didn't like one another. But notice verse 31. So they, the Jews, they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy. Now they are disobedient. And then the later phrase in verse 31. So also they may now receive mercy. That's why I don't think this passage is pointing to what's going to happen to the Jews at the end of time. No, right now in this present age. They are in the prison. We are in the prison. They can find the door of mercy. We can find the door of mercy as God directs us. Romans 11 is about now. What is mercy? Well, remember 9, chapter 9. What shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I come into the prison of disobedience against God, and I look around and I say, I am showing compassion there, and I am showing mercy here. The Gentiles, the Jews, and now thirdly, verse 32. The summary statement. All true Israel. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God has earlier imprisoned, shut them up, consigned them, confined them to a prison. The only thing that they know in their lives are disobedience to God. Lensky. Now in verse 32 comes the final statement and explanation. The unit that ties everything together and thus leaves nothing further to be added. God has placed all the Jews and all the Gentiles of whom Paul is here speaking, he has placed them in the same level in order to save all of them by the same means. You're all stinking sinners living in the prison of disobedience. So don't get all high and mighty that you're a Gentile looking down on a Jew. And don't get all high and mighty that you're a Jew looking down on the (laughs) Gentile. Same address, fellas. The prison of disobedience. And God's locking all of them up together for disobedience, left all of them with nothing whatever, but this, their disobedience. Disobedience. What can you offer to God for works righteousness if you know that you're living in the prison of disobedience before God? Did I say something about maybe I wouldn't like him if we were not Christians? I'm in the prison of disobedience and so are you. And my motto is, me, me, me. And should I be embarrassed to tell you that? Well, I'm not really embarrassed because I know what your motto is. Me, me, me. And I may have been nice to you in the prison of disobedience because I would want to be important. Me wants to be important. And me knows that If me is not yet important, me at least needs to have friends. But me is looking at you for what I can get out of you. Me can learn something about how to get ahead by being with you. Me looks better if me's got some friends. Maybe you're not the best sort of friend, but you'll do for now. It's horrible. Think of what Solomon says in Ecclesiastes about life cut off from God. It's as significant as a breath of air. All is vanity of vanities. It's as significant as one puff of air after another. God shut them up together in disobedience means that locked in all hope And all self help have disappeared. Disobedience, disobedience was all that they had and all that they could produce. Only one door permits one to leave this prison, and it is inscribed with the name God's Mercy. That is why all else is taken from them. God locks them up in the prison, and if you're not a Christian, then I hope that you at least will understand that you are living in the prison of disobedience and there's really nothing that you can bring to God to say, this is why you need to let me into heaven. And once you see that desperate condition, you will be desperate to get connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. In prison... My motto is me, me, me. My motto as a believer is agape love. What can I do to help those who are around me? Do you see that you're locked up in a prison? Do you see that you're selfish? Do you see that you can't really please God if you're committed to me, me, me? God may shake up your life. God may bring something into your life that you see your smallness, you see your insignificance, you see that you are not God. That bad thing may be the best thing that ever happens to you. For you to see you are not God, but rather have been made by God and owe your life to God. And what about this door of mercy? Mercy. God looks at all the rebel worms living in the prison of disobedience and he says I feel compassion for this one I have mercy on that one God's kindness, God's grace, God's love is at work and he invites you to this door of mercy it's the way out and God's mercy is seen in that he said son Will you humble yourself and take a human body? Son, will you live in this sin-cursed, God-hating world and endure rejection even to the point of their spit hanging from your face? And will you go to the cross and will you let me load all of their sin Onto you. And God's mercy in Jesus Christ says. Yes I will go. And the Holy Spirit says. Yes I'll be involved too. And I will go dwell. In those that are just out of prison. A prison of disobedience to God. And I will change this. God feels compassion for sinners like you and me and I urge you to go to God and ask God to do what only he can do. Only God can take you through the door of his mercy. But what a wonderful thing. What a wonderful thing to know that whatever our background, whatever financial level, whatever color our skin is, whatever ethnicity, and some of us in this room, based on our ethnicities, we have a duty to hate one another. But we don't. God has brought us out of that where we were ignoring God when we were living for self, brought us together in the church. And we now have love for one another. And he says, this is how you're to think of one another. You all started the same place. You all came through the door of mercy. And by the time we get to chapter 16, he's going to tell us that we need to give One another, whenever we see one another, we are to greet one another with a holy kiss. Enemies in prison, me, 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 what can you do for me? What can I do for you? And let there be a kiss somehow planted in the air or maybe gently on the the cheek, A, a kiss that communicates, I do love you. And I do esteem you. And I do want to be with you now and for all eternity. There's the gospel. And now I am more than ever ready and anxious to come to the great doxology. With all of this, Prison, door of mercy, ready to plant a kiss on my fellow believer's cheek. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory Forever. I can just envision us. We'll all stand in a circle. We'll all hold hands. We'll all acknowledge the prison where we've come from. We'll all acknowledge the door of mercy that we've gone through. And we'll sing this doxology together. May God make it so. Let's pray. Father, humble us and encourage us by seeing the great privilege of walking through that door of your mercy. Thank you for having grace in your heart. Thank you for having kindness that conceives a plan of salvation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and dying for us. Thank you, Holy Spirit for coming and living within us and cleaning up the mess of our lives. Continue to do your work, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.